Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? I'm doing great. Welcome back. Thank you. And uh, thank you to, uh, it takes two people to fill in for David Bax. Exactly. Thank you for to a uh, friend of the show, Jason Eakin, and friend of the show, Kyle Anderson. Indeed. Um, I, I trust you guys had, had a good time. I have not listened. <laughs> yeah. We talked for, for two full hours. Uh, oh, I know that. The f- that yeah. part I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm well aware. If you want to sit out, you pay the price. Yeah. All right? And the price, it's two hours. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, now we've got, uh, now I believe this week is the official ending point. Of 2014 of, for of Battleship 2014. Retention. <laughs> it's the Battleship Retention fiscal year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, ends this week. Yeah. So, um, and we'll get to that in a moment, but... Uh, but yeah, uh, first, at the top of the show, I wanted to tell a story. So it was my birthday recently, and That'll happen. my uh, wife and I, did. I, it was a very low-key day. I went to Round Table Pizza. I went to Target to uh, get a, um, uh, to, what do you call that, redeem a, a gift card that I got. And, uh, oh, yeah? What'd you use it on? I purchased the movie Nightcrawler. Oh, That'll do it. Yeah, and I was very excited to to own it. I feel like I'm going to rewatch it on a fairly regular basis. But, uh, but yeah, as we were driving home, I we were driving on, for Los Angeles listeners. I was driving on Van Owen near Woodman, very specific, and I happened to see a, a, a in a little shopping center, not shopping center. What do you call that? Strip mall. Strip mall. Um, a uh, a sign that said Star Video. And I was like, okay, well, and there are still a handful of video stores in the Valley, but they're almost always like, okay, this is an Armenian video store oh, right, right. or something. So I thought maybe or it was the ones that. in, uh, like the Thai video stores yeah. that like also sell like the, um, CDs that are just karaoke backing tracks. Yep. That's big in Thai town. It's, it's hard to go into a like CD store in Thai, in Thai town and find a CD that actually has singing on it. Like, they're way more geared toward the karaoke backing track uh, CDs. I'm always fascinated by subcultures. That It's just, it, not that I, not subcultures that I, like, look down on or anything like that, but it's just, I didn't even know they existed. Like, when we made that documentary about uh, the Miki... Uh, you made. Uh, yeah. Like, I helped you out. That's true, yes. I, I, I brought you in on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, yeah. We, we we... But mostly Tyler made a short documentary about a breed of dog yeah. that didn't exist until, what, like 20 years ago? Yeah. And, and this, this woman, woman who created a breed of dog yeah. who's not, she's not like a Joseph Mengele or mad scientist <laughs> no, or anything. She's a sweet old lady um, right. with very callous grandkids. So, um, yeah, I, I, we're comfortable saying that, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they were jerks. Yeah, they're monsters. So, uh, yeah, and, and as, we dis- as we dug more into the world of the Miki breed you discover this horrifying underbelly uh-huh. of the world of dog breeding where yeah. other people will claim yeah people will claim no no i created that breed and just it's insane but anyway yeah so this uh you know oh, what's weird? oh you were talking about like a uh, thai video stores this was a just a regular run-of-the-mill video store uh that was independently owned and i and jen and i hadn't been to a video store in a long time and so we walked in, and sure enough, 
it had you know the new release wall it had it had everything a video store has uh with a couple of weird twists that i'll tell about i'll tell you about in a moment but um but did you feel like maybe you'd walked into like an alternate present maybe yeah <laughs> right like this is if certain things didn't go the same way like what if what if you pulled out your cell phone and the people behind the counter are like, whoa, what is that? There's <laughs> like, is that a phaser? <laughs> um, but yeah, and so I we walked in and uh, we decided we're going to try and support this local establishment because of being independent. We thought we would do that. And we enjoy the atmosphere of a video store. And so um, we rented, uh, we we're going to rent Gone Girl, which Jen is watching as we speak. Um and as we went to set up our account, they said, for setting up, uh, you get three free movies from the middle here. So, you know, older films. So we went in. And did they call it the middle? They did. Okay. Usually it's catalog. Catalog or titles. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so we did that. And Maybe they didn't want to sh- talk, talk shop in front of you. Maybe exactly, they didn't yeah, know yeah. that you know. Yeah. I should have I done my little, uh, my little nose flick there <laughs> like in the sting. Um and yeah, and it would just, I know it sounds weird and I know that like, you know, it's this nostalgia thing, but when Jen and I were dating, a thing that we would often do is walk to the, the Blockbuster right by her house in uh, Chicago and we would rent a movie, we would purchase a couple of Choco Tacos and then we would go back and watch it. And this place is near enough to us that, uh, and my, and Friday happens to be my day off and so... We have decided that we're, we will do whatever we can to go to this video store for as long as it lasts. And it opened in September and apparently has done very well. I think they opened in a very good area. And frankly, there's no competition at this point. Right. Um, and so uh, we're going to try and go as often as we can on a Friday, get a Choco Taco. And Friday night, we're going to watch a movie together. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited for it. Now, what's weird about this video store that you were telling me? All right. So... <sighs> So, David, you know, when I say new release, well, you know what I mean. Sure. You know, uh, basically around the entire perimeter of the store, that's where all the movies that have come out probably in the last year, uh, that's where you'll find them. Now, mo- and, and, now, hold on. When you worked at video store, like Blockbuster. Yeah. What, is there a time limit for something being on the, on the new release wall? It was usually about a, like... But, I mean, is it the specific... Because when I... My, my, the video store that I managed in Chicago, mm-hmm. which was an independent one, so I got to pick when stuff came off. Oh, okay. Stuff, if it was still renting, it would just stay on the video, on the new release wall. Or, when we got new releases, I would pick stuff, like if something was coming out, like, I don't know, um, Taking Lives, right? Oh, came boy. out. <laughs> so, oh, we got a few copies of Taking Lives. I need to find something roughly, l- roughly in the late S's, early T's mm-hmm. that is underperforming. Yeah. As a result, stuff in further, more distant corners of the alphabet would hang in there. Which, like Zoolander was on our new release fall <laughs> for like two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We um, with Blockbuster, of course, it was a big corporation, so uh, there would be reports of what on the new release wall that had been out for a while was renting well, what was not. And then you just get a report saying, take this down um, or leave this up. So there are some movies that we would only have like two copies of and wound up being surprisingly uh, uh, popular. And those would stay up for probably, you know, uh, 18 months Hmm. and uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, but no, in this case, uh, when you, when you, Anytime I would go to a video store, I would be like, all right, I'm going to see what's new. 
Right. So I'd get into the store, cut straight, go go right to the left. Because that's where the alphabet starts. That's where the start, you know, when you Numbers, read, then A. Yeah, th- exactly. On the left. On the left. Because you read left to right, David. That's the way I look at it. And that's Here, how we do it in America. That's right. Which is, I believe, where the store is located. And so, uh, yeah, no, not the case here. Here, I go to the left. Hey, there's a, what are all these Z's and W's doing here? This is weird. (laughs) Why is Whiplash here? That's strange. And then I start, and in terrible alphabetical order, by the way. Like, it's basically like, hey, here's a bunch of W's. It's up to you to figure it out. So, wait. Okay. So, it's backwards. The A is at the right. The A is at the right. But is it backwards within... Like, oh, there's, it's not backwards or forwards. It's just, here's a bunch of A's. Oh, okay. Enjoy. You know? Right. Um, so it's, it's very frustrating. I, I asked. Sounds like it was a bunch of A-holes. Oh, put that together. Watch out. I did, I did, (laughs) I did ask, uh, when the manager would next be in there. Cause I, cause I'm, I'm so close to, uh, realizing my dream of consulting on a video store, man, on video store management. Uh, so I can be like. Hey, I love video stores, and I'm excited that right. you're just doing well. Seriously, though, put those in the right order. Uh, I just can't wait to see how quickly you go from discovering this new place that's going to be a part of your weekly tradition to being asked never to return. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and like, and here's the, and it's also little things like, like they have a thriller section, which is like, oh boy, that's fun. Located in that section, United ninety three. Eh. I'm even if I'm being really, really flexible on the definition of thriller, I feel like United ninety three belongs in drama there. You know? And so I feel yeah, like that would be the more sensitive. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So I think as I was walking along in the catalog section, I noticed a couple of things that were either someone put them out of place or just this was the the way the video store is put together was just sort of thrown together. Um so, you know, it's it's fine when you're the only game in town. I guess you do whatever you want. Um, but either way, I'm just excited that uh, that there's a video store that's close to me that Jen and I can go and support, you know, support local businesses and uh, do and kind of do this tradition that used to be a big part of our relationship. And now we can do it again. So there we go. I kind of want to know if they're hiring. Pick, maybe pick up some shifts. You know what? I had stupidly. I ha- like I work from home. I set my own schedule, and I get paid pretty well. And yet somehow it's like, oh, you know, maybe. You know, I mean, I could work like two days a week here, yeah. and like really, uh, really whip this place into shape. Yeah. <laughs> just like, what are you talking about? I just turned thirty three. I walked. <laughs> I had that thought on my thirty third birthday, and just like that's. It's like I'm having a midlife crisis. Yeah. No. It's- <laughs> The answer to the question, like, if you won the lottery and could do whatever you wanted, what would you do? Your answer would be, be a video store clerk, apparently. No, mine would be run a video store, and I have final say over what they carry and how it is run. Right. In terms of movies, Choco Tacos, everything. Yeah, which is to say it would have movies and Choco Tacos. What does no other snacks it would have? What about uh, Sour Patch Kids? That's out. No, thank you. I don't care. What about popcorn, though? The kind of popcorn that, like, video stores have is just in the bags, and it's not that good in the first place. But it's good to have. Like, you don't want to make two stops. You want to have popcorn with your movie. You know what you get? You get a popcorn machine. You pop the popcorn and put it in little bags. There was a video what? store in Nixa that had that. My video store, delicious. my star video that I used to work at, yeah. had that. Um, but, I mean, still, that's kind of like, that's for the kitties and stuff. 
But uh, the idea is you get popcorn to watch with your movie. Not everyone who's running a movie is going straight home to watch it. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> anyway. I guess so. Let's talk. Um, do we have any uh, sponsorships we need to talk about today? We've got the usual, the uh, tweaked. Tweakedaudio.com uh, is, is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. Um, they're, they're bright and shiny and very, very stylish, uh, and they sound fantastic. Just listen to them today, uh, as I do every day. Indeed. Um, and uh, you go to tweakedaudio.com, you get those. They're super affordable, but because you know us, because you're cool, because you're down with Battleship Pretension, you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, you get one-third off. And no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. This is our wrap-up. This is our final, the, 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 the final nail in the coffin for 2014. Mm. Um, probably not best to think of it that way. Yeah. Uh, where we do our own... Per- we, now, we had the BP's awards. Yes. The, 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 the pinnacle of award season, the thing that everyone, everything gears up toward. I think so, yeah. Um, but now we're doing our personal just shout-outs to individual achievements. Right. Um, I feel like this episode and this premise is more your baby. Okay. Even though we, so, we've done it uh, every year. Yeah, but I still want you to lead the way. Okay. I will lead with... <laughs> with uh, with a, an explanation of, of how I arrive at these. So I tried to avoid overlap with the BPs. Oh. I also tried to avoid overlap with my own top 10. Like if I'm talking about, oh. if I'm talking about individual achievement, like for a lead actress, I could talk about S.E. Davis. The Duke was my favorite movie of last year and she won the BP. So there's a number of reasons why I, like why it would make sense for me to talk about her. But I feel like I've already said everything that I, that I want to say about her. And so I want to try and use this as, as an opportunity sure. to say like, this is almost like sort of like the through the cracks episode, but with individual, uh, individual achievements and that sort of thing. So in, in various categories. So, uh, you may, people may find it strange. Like why are, why is he not talking about Jennifer Kent's for director? Uh, right. And it's because I already did when I talked about it as my favorite uh, movie of 2014. So that's that's how I approach it. Do you approach it in a different way? Uh, I'll probably have more lo- overlap with my top ten okay. than you. But yeah, if if something is like when it comes to supporting actress, I think I uh, I think Patricia Arquette Ar- Ar- Patricia Arquette was as great as everybody else does. Okay, but I probably won't pick her out because yeah. everyone else has kind of already talked about it yes it's been discussed already yeah but so. i still I, i'll probably have a lot more stuff in my top from my top 10 than you will okay but uh, where do you want to start uh let's start you know what you just said supporting actress let's do it oh okay supporting actress do you do you want me to go first yes i do want you to go okay. first because i still haven't quite decided so a moment ago i mentioned gone girl and uh listeners of uh, the bb's mm. saw that uh in the supporting actress category, you got uh, Carrie Coon, who did a great job. But that's not who I want to talk about. Oh, okay. I want to talk about Kim Dickens, oh. who came very close I, to being nominated for a BP. You're speaking my language. She's. I, I first saw her in Deadwood. Thought she did a really great job. Um, I've seen her in various other things since then. But this is a uh, and, and I'm glad that her career is. I'm not sure if I'd say it's taken off, but I'm glad that she's getting as much work as she is uh, these days. And, uh, you know, Gone Girl has really a, a nice slate of characters. There's, you know, basically two leads, but a really strong supporting cast. 
And when you have a mystery, especially when there's sort of a, a man who may or may not have done it, he might be falsely accused, you don't know. Uh, law enforcement is a very important, uh, very crucial role. And one of the reasons that I'm a big, that I'm such a fan of the fugitive is because I think the character of the, the, uh, U S marshal played by Tommy Lee Jones. I love the way he's written and I love the way he's played, which is he's not inspector Javert. He is doing his job. Mm -hmm. He's trying to find the truth, but he's also very tenacious and he's and that's how I feel about Kim Dickens in Gone Girl, where she is trying she's following the clues. The clues are very obvious. And so she's following she's going with the simplest explanation because, you know, this because she's not living in an Agatha Christie story. But as things start to not line up, when everything becomes a little too obvious, she she becomes really like the main character's worst enemy to his best friend. Not literally his best friend, but, you know, she's a a a level-headed person who is committed to finding the truth. She has no agenda. Almost everybody in the film has an agenda. She does not. She is a decent person doing her job. And it's important that the character not seem oppressive, not seem uh, stupid and easily manipulated, and just seem like maybe the smartest person in the room and certainly towards the end. And I won't, I won't give anything away when she's filled when she's in a room filled with law enforcement, uh, officers, all of whom are higher ranking than she is. It's important that she seem that like she is the smartest one in the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also she, she knows what her job is and she knows when to say, you know, she knows when to quit, which is to say she knows when nobody's going to listen to her and stuff. It's a really – I think the character's written very well. She's also remarkably funny, um, you know, and she reminds me of Marge Gunderson in that respect. Uh-huh. Just a, a genuinely decent character who can make jokes and just uh, almost uh, – I keep referencing other characters, but I feel like we're meant to think of those types of characters. Almost like Columbo. She'll make jokes and be like your buddy. Right. And then she'll say – and she'll say, oh, one more question. And, of course, the most incisive question you've heard and she has to juggle all of these things. Um, almost every actor in Gone Girl has to be their character and maybe something bigger than that as a concept. And she has to be the person who is not manipulated by the media, by perpetrators. She is the one person who actually has this all figured out and wants to figure it out. And so I think her performance is marvelous. I was kind of bummed that she didn't wind up being nominated for a BP, but you know, uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of very worthy, uh, contenders this, uh, this year. Um, but yeah, so Kim Dickens is my, uh, her individual achievement in supporting actress is, uh, worth noting. Uh, I'm already going to break our rules. Um, it's Son an individual, but it's two different roles. I'll be, oh. I'll be doing this more than once. Okay, that's fine. But someone who is good, and it's not, uh, it's not going to be Laura Dern, as a, although she was great in both Wild and The Fault in Our Stars. Okay, I want to talk about Eva Green, who was uh, astounding in Three Hundred Rise of an Empire, as I've talked about before. Okay, um, and also in the little scene, and also I think underappreciated uh, White Bird in a Blizzard, directed okay. by Greg Araki. Um, in both cases, she's. Um, very over the top, which is, I think, something that Eva Green does 
very well. You know, mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a certain brand of uh, not maybe brand is not a word, but there there's a certain strain of actor who can chew scenery and still plug into a lot of different types of movies while doing that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not that either 300 Rise of an Empire or anything by Greg Araki is a standard movie. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's okay to be, um, to be overacting. But, um, uh, I, I already talked, uh, in our, I, I think I, was it in our through the cracks episode or when it was a movie journal. Uh, I talked about 300 Rise of an Empire and how she's the best part of the movie to the point that when it became, when it got to the, final showdown between the good guy and the bad guy i forgot that i wasn't supposed to be rooting for her yeah <laughs> like she's the bad guy and i wanted her to win because i because she's the just the best part of the entire movie and the most interesting person on screen at any given time um in white bird and a Bl- white bird and a blizzard i don't know if you know the story don't. <clears throat> but she's um shailene woodley's uh, mother who goes missing early on in the story a lot of it's her her being missing informs a lot of the character and plot development that goes on from there. So most of her performing is in flashback or dream sequences, mm-hmm. which again, very fitting to uh, uh, a, a larger or a grander type of mm-hmm. uh, type of performance because um, you see because she's because she's Eva Green and she has this energy that seems like otherworldly in some ways uh, or, or at least uncontainable. Um, she's like the last person you would expect to be a, you know, a domestic housewife type. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the point in that she's miserably unhappy and doesn't want to be miserably unhappy is a little bit redundant. Um, doesn't want to be tied down to this, this life that works out great for Chris Maloney as her husband. Mm-hmm. Cause he, you know, it's a sort of standard, it's a man's world. He gets to go to work every day and have that life. Um, where we find out all the secretaries think he's hot, even though he would never cheat or anything. He's yeah. like, uh, he, he gets to be cool and gets to be desired. Whereas she's Eva Green, this, you know, this burning candle of, um, you know, uh, uniqueness. <laughs> she, um, and she stays at home all the time. So it, it's a perfect role for her. But most of what we see is more about Shailene Woodley's character's idea of her parents' yeah. marriage. So it's almost like you're stepping into this like um romantic melodrama from like the the forties or fifties when you're in these flashback sequences with her and Chris Maloney and she just really gets to be uh just this broad and sweeping performance. Um they're both fantastic. Uh and Eva Green has now become one of those one of those people that, um, like, like a Robert Duvall is going to be good no matter what <laughs> she's in. Like, even if the movie is crap, it's yeah. probably, and I haven't seen Sin City, a dame for whom to kill. Uh, not my joke. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm sure she's fantastic in it. Oh, sure. Um, did you okay. see that one? I did not. Okay. I was, I, I really liked the first one. I'm curious to th- see the second partially because, I'm fascinated to see just how far a thing can fall in 10 years. <laughs> just, I mean, I, and I say that without, uh, like, I'm not trying to, to make a joke, but it's just, it's the same, same director, a lot of the same actors, same source material. And yet somehow 
it one one is con- was considered groundbreaking and exciting yeah. and vital. I saw and the other considered one of the worst movies of the year. <laughs> I saw side by side pictures of Comic Con panels mm-hmm. for Sin City, and then ten years later for A Dame to Kill for, and. Jessica Alba was like a baby when she was in Sin City. Yeah. If you look at the pictures next to each other, they're like, she's a beautiful woman now. Yeah. She was like, a, she looks like a kid. Yeah, she was uh, very young. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll throw it to you. What category do you want to talk about? No, next? no, I told you. I made this very clear. You're steering this boat. Well, I didn't know how much I, didn't know how much I was steering. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll jump to uh, adapted screenplay. Oh, okay. What do you think of that? I love it. All right. Uh, do you need time to pick out what you're going to... No, you're you're, gonna, you're uh, going first on all of these all right, for you, this reason. You son of a bitch. Okay. Uh, well, I, why are you angry? I don't know. Because um, <laughs> I feel like playing that part today. Oh, okay. Um, so, okay. Uh, I will be talking about the script for Edge of Tomorrow, written by Christopher McQuarrie, Jez Butterworth, John Hen- and John Henry Butterworth. Um, now, I've not read the uh, the source material. I'm sure it's very interesting. Uh, what I, what works so well for me about the script of Edge of Tomorrow, and there's a lot of things I like about Edge of Tomorrow, but I think that script really deserves, uh, singling out because, uh, it manages to juggle, uh, genuine laugh out loud humor. I mean, it's, it really, I mean, this film could definitely be seen as almost an action comedy. Um, but when you're making an action comedy, Often the action will start will overwhelm the comedy, so there's no laughs, or especially if there's a lot of special effects involved, or the comedy will undercut the action to such a degree that it feels like there's no stakes. Uh, in this film, and you and I do agree that uh, the last ten minutes of the film uh, it gets very serious and it becomes much more conventional yeah, and that sort yeah. of thing. But uh, that's not, you know. Uh, as far uh, ratio wise, that's not terrible. That if the last ten minutes, not even that they're bad, they're merely conventional. But the con- but conventional winds up looking somehow bad simply because of everything that came before it and just how fun and novel that was. And so for them to be able to to juggle the various tones and still and in the midst of all that still deliver a main character with a very with a clearly defined arc and set up a world that we understand set up a mythology that that we understand to a certain extent as far as why this is happening they had a lot of stuff that they had to that they had to uh get across and i think they get across basically all of it and so i think it's you know there's a lot of great stuff about that film the performances special effects i think it's directed really well um and I won't say that at its core is a, is a great script, but I will say that they had some really great material. You know, Doug Lyman and Tom Cruise had really great material to draw from, and I think a, probably a good portion of that is Christopher McQuarrie, uh, as far as bringing in you know sort of the cleverness and the humor and that sort of thing. So I think I'm a big fan of Edge of Tomorrow. I think it's a great film, and I think the script deserves a, a singling out. Um, for adapted screenplay, I really wanted to. Uh, focus on the idea because we've seen uh, maybe in just because Fifty Shades of Grey is so recent and and Twilight, which was ins- you know inspired Fifty Shades of Grey uh, mm-hmm. initially. Um, I wanted to focus on the idea of adapting a hugely popular book no. and the difficulties in that because there's so many 
expectations or maybe just so many temptations no. to um, to be loyal. And uh, I narrowed it down to two, and I almost went with the Fault in Our Stars, um, which is really. I mean, I haven't read I haven't read any of these sources. I, I don't I, I don't read that many books anymore, which is sad. Yeah. <laughs> I read like a lot of newspapers and stuff like that, but I uh, need to get back into reading books. I keep buying them, by the way. No, oh, yeah, I have stacks and stacks. Yeah, never stop of books, but I like keep falling behind on reading them because I'm reading. Uh, you know, movie reviews and news and stuff like that. Anyway, um, and Fault in Our Stars is fantastic, but it's just going to get edged out by Gone Girl just because it's Gone Girl is better. So I'm giving it, I'm giving it to, to, uh, to Gone Girl, which I think again, not I, I don't know the source material, but I do know no. that some changes were made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Have you read it? Uh, I have not. Okay. I, and I mean, it's you know, it's the same author, and that can. I think more that often than not, that's a that's dangerous. Trouble. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Um, but uh, the, I mean, this is clearly. I mean, Gillian Flynn before she wrote novels, wrote for Entertainment Weekly. This is someone who is who um, knows popular culture and probably um, as a former journalist slash critic, um, probably has an ability to look at her work with a cold eye and uh, or a clear eye and know well, what works in a book is not necessarily going to work in a movie right. and gear it, gear it toward that. Um, cause it really does feel like, um, it was written to be this movie, uh, the way that, um, the way that cause and effect works and the way that I, I think, um, uh, the, the way that the screenplay builds momentum and then sustains momentum, which I think is, um, harder to do. Um, and more necessary in a movie than a book mm-hmm. because I think it's more, it's more accepted to read a book piece by piece. Yeah. Right. Whereas people generally, when they're watching movies or at least ideally because they're shown in movie theaters, um, there's a, you know, there are fourth dimensional start and end points to yeah. a movie. Um, and so sustaining momentum and, and making it all feel as a, uh, feel of a, of a, of a whole, um, is, uh, paramount. So, uh, I think she did a great job. Yeah, it's it's a really solid script, and it did win uh, the BP for adapted screenplay. And Jason spoke very eloquently about why. So, well, uh, just go listen to that because I did not speak eloquently just now. No, it makes sense when you talk about the challenge of of adaptation, which I actually didn't talk about. So, um, okay, moving on, we'll go with um, we'll go with lead actor. Lead actor. Okay, that's right. All right. So um, I will talk about, and I talked about this a little bit in the movie journal. I will talk about Tom Hardy in Locke. Uh, there's a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of others that I wanted to talk about, but I decided to, to land on him because, um, I think it's a very well-written film. I think it's remarkably well shot given the type of film that it is, which it all takes place in one car with one guy on screen. There are plenty of other characters that we hear, but we don't see. And so, um, so there's a lot, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say that, that, the film belongs to Tom Hardy, except he is, he is the face of the movie. I mean, in the same way that, you know, Castaway, when you think of Castaway, you think of Tom Hanks because he does have a lot of weight on his shoulders. And in, and in Locke, you have a character who's going through an emotional uh, crisis that could ruin his life. And you also have a guy who is trying to, keep things together uh, personally and he has his own motivations for doing things and t- 
Tom Hardy makes just in various movies that he's been a part of, he makes very interesting uh, vocal choices. Like, I mean, when you think of, he could have played Bane <laughs> in a very straightforward way, uh, vocally. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he made him, but the choices he made, some people laugh at it, but I think it made the character seem particularly strange and, and menacing in that regard. And so, uh, and he does the same with Locke. He, the character, he, the way the character talks is very careful very measured and this is a man who has had who has control who always has control over his life and as the film goes on we come to realize why why he's motivated to do that and so you know you have all this weight on tom hardy's shoulders and even within that he's trying to explore as much as like he's trying like he leaves no part of the character unexplored to the extent of it would have been easy to just play the character straightforward and really just try to focus on wh- how am I going to show what he's feeling. But he wanted to say, think like, all right, well, this character existed before he got in this car. He started. He existed before the movie uh, began. So knowing what I know about his motivations and his past, how would that have affected him? Okay, so this is how he would conduct his – this is how he would uh, – conduct himself this is how he would deliver certain things to certain people uh so there's just there's like he keeps a lot of plates spinning and brings all that into uh this one performance that seems uh consistent and lived in and extremely watchable uh i don't did you see Locke? no i didn't i think i think you would uh like it i don't think it's a perfect film i think the the conceit of the film sometimes doesn't work out as far as the all the events that happen but it is still a very uh it's still a very exciting thing to watch especially from a performance standpoint all right um i'm gonna with leading actor i'm gonna take a page out of your book and skip i'm gonna skip over the one that was in my top 10 it was uh, on the bps which is jake gyllenhaal okay um we've talked about him it's on the bps yeah if i'm being honest it's Jake Gyllenhaal for me. Sure. But I'm going to shine a light instead on Brendan Gleeson in Calvary. Okay. Um, because, well, I've talked before, uh, I think uh, a long time ago, I wrote um, in a review of uh, The Iceman. Is that what the movie's called with uh, with, my, with Michael Shannon? Yes. Uh, I wrote about how sometimes an actor is so consistently good that you forget to mention or forget to notice yeah. how good they are. And I feel like Brendan Gleeson definitely is in danger of that because not only is he so good, but he's so casually and comfortably good in everything that he's in. Yeah. Like, it just seems so at home on screen yeah. that uh, it is easy to uh, to to forget. Um, but it's this is a slow burn of a movie that um he 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 manages to be the sort of uh the sardonic Brendan Gleeson or just that you know that that sort of Irish character type mm-hmm. um that seems to be partially defined by not letting things get to him you know mm-hmm. when other people are upset he's always kind of at a remove and yet over the course of the film he gets more and more uh, worked up. Did you ever get a chance to finish watching it? No, not okay. yet. Okay, so he does... But what I saw so far, I, I well, have a he, sense of what you're talking about. Yeah, but he, I mean, he does eventually start losing his temper more than once. Um, 
and it 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 never it never feels um like an actorly choice like it never feels like you can see him making the choice to turn like uh okay this is where the character goes from this to this yeah it's a uh, i mean it's it's stupid that you know i've been watching movies forever but sometimes i'm still really wowed by performances because of the fact that movies are often shot out of order yeah like i still i still have a tough time like getting my head around how difficult that must be to give a great performance in a movie that when it's a dynamic character like that and keep in your head where this character is at any given time it just seems really very difficult to do yeah uh and he does it um uh fantastically um and he also is very funny yeah yeah you know that's it's interesting that you bring that up and i feel like it's a thing that we should talk about more often is just breaking down exactly what a certain aspect of filmmaking requires Mm -hmm. and from an acting standpoint you are shooting it out of order and if you're the lead that means you have an arc and you could shoot the ending first right and then uh you know uh, maybe like 25 minutes into the film like that could be shot the next time like in the next day right and you need to keep track of where your character is emotionally at all times and be able to lock into that yeah you know it it does make when you when you think about that it actually does make a lot more sense when you hear actors who don't get out of character because their performance could just seem so disjointed what with the the nature of film production Um, um and i also forgot to mention that um not only is he tracking the character's arc but he's also um, really living with the character's backstory because you find out he's a priest, but this is a guy who was married and had a daughter who's grown now and his wife died. And then as a, not just an adult, but as an older man mm-hmm. decided to become like, <laughs> to become a priest. Yeah. Um, and I, I think when compared to the other priest that's in his parish with him, who clearly became a priest at a younger age and sort of followed this path, mm-hmm. um, you can see their different motivations, you know, that this other priest who sometimes used for comic relief, I don't know how much of him you saw um, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you get the impression he thinks less about what it means to be a priest because that's just what he's a choice he made at a very young age. And it's just, it just seems natural in his life path to him. Whereas Brendan Gleeson's character is a priest for very specific reasons and makes all of his choices based on a philosophy that he, arrived at through years of living a different kind of life that brought him to this. Uh, and I think he carries that with him, uh, in every scene. All right. Uh, we will jump to original screenplay next. Okay. I hope you're keeping track of which ones we've done and haven't done. I am. Okay. Uh, I will talk about JC Chander's wonderful script for a most violent year. Okay. Uh, did you see the film? Um, yes, I did. Okay. Uh, I didn't see all this. We might be talking about it later. Oh, watch out. Um, Oh, uh, we definitely will, uh, for me as well. Um, so I was a big fan of margin call. I thought it was a really strong script. I did not get a chance to see, um, all is lost. Uh, I still need to see it. I'm still interested to see it. Um, there's a lot of things I do like about margin call, but when you watch a most violent year, it actually shines a light on how much of a first script margin call was. Sorry. It's probably, he probably wrote like 10 scripts before that, but how much of a first film it is because the script is filled with 
character types that are well-directed and they're well-written, but they're still very much character types, each one representative of something larger, Which there's and there's nothing wrong with that. But as a result, I feel like the script is a little bit self-conscious um, and, very, and maybe a little bit too self-aware. Whereas I feel like A Most Violent Year is much more, in the same way that you're talking about uh, Brendan Gleeson's performance, it feels like a much more lived-in world, one that, where not everybody is, you know, bloviating all the time. Not everybody is, is, you know, making their point. Right. Even though the main character does make his point on a regular basis, the character is created, ha, is written in such a way and conceived in such a way that he is, he would say this kind of thing. He would speechify a little bit because that's the type of person he is. As and also, he's, to that's the type of writer we're watching. Right. And also, I think um, he's speechifying, as you put, uh, I like that word, um, but he's doing it partially for himself because he's trying to keep himself on track and Absolutely. keep himself honest. Yeah. It's, you can tell it's just, it's almost kind of a mantra for him that like, all right, this is what, I, this is what an American right. does. This is what an honest worker does, that kind of thing. Um, and maybe if I can convince somebody else, it'll help me convince myself a little bit. So there's all of that going on. There's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of, uh, plot development developments happening. Um, but yeah, but it all seems like a thing that could happen. It all seems very real and not and unselfconscious, even though the nature of this story could seem so clever and aware and deep. Oh, so very deep. And it is deep, but not in a way that points to how deep it is. Um, at least I don't think so. Maybe there's a couple moments here and there, but I feel like those still spring from the character. So I think it's a wonderful script. I'm very excited that we've seen the emergence of J.C. Chander uh, as a really solid writer-director. So, what do you got? Uh, this, uh, I, I don't know if you'll consider this a cheat, because when we talked about this in the Top Ten episode, we talked about just how much it's inspired by the Book of Job. Oh, okay. But I'm going to go with Leviathan. All right. Direct, uh, written by, sorry, excuse me, the director, Andrei Zivyagintsev. Okay. Uh, and I should have uh, taken note during the Oscars when they said his name. And they said it; it was so smooth, I couldn't yeah. even follow along. Uh, and Oleg Negin—that's the uh, the, uh, the co-writer's name. And it's almost when I talked about Gone Girl, I talked about momentum and you know just forward emotion and one thing you know cause and cause and effect. Um, and this is has that, and then is also a refutation of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the early. Um, uh, you know the 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 first act, or even into the first uh, the, the second act. When I talked about it on, uh, um, what, what, what was it? I? I can't remember if it was when I what I said. On, I think it was when I we were talking with Scott and Aaron when you weren't on the on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I compared the early part of the movie to uh, Esgar Farhadi's A Separation. I don't know okay. if you yeah, yeah. Uh, saw that. I did. Um, in that it's like it's a legal drama that's very based in reality one thing leads to next to the next in very much the way that it would it's all believable and yet it plays out like a thriller mm-hmm. um and then the over the course of the movie it, cha- it it makes a turn it makes multiple turns and it becomes different things and in in some ways it becomes a much bigger thing but that also means it becomes a little more diffuse um and the screenplay is able to uh, pull that off while keeping its finger on all of the the threads. That's not a metaphor that works, but yeah. um, it's it, it it keeps everything. It keeps all the all the 
all the characters sharp while the world around them loses its form in a way because it's everything's falling apart for this guy um and it you know one uh, cause and effect isn't necessarily making sense anymore you know i mean that the the movie isn't like surreal like (laughs) things that happen make sense but it isn't one thing leading into the next and the next and the next like it is earlier shit starts to kind of just happen to the guy in a way which kind of mimics life even though we even though you know we're living our lives and we can we can point to why something is starting to go badly it the way uh a crisis kind of develops. It could mm-hmm. be, Oh, my job's not going well. And you know what? Actually now my marriage isn't going well as well. Maybe the two are linked. I can't quite tell. Oh, son of a bitch. Now this is happening. Uh-huh. Now I got to get the fucking car repaired. And it's just like, it just like things just sort of emerge. Right. And even though if we sit down and think about it, we can say, okay, yes. Uh, I got, I feel like I'm getting a lot of pressure from my boss. I can't, I can't yell at him. Uh, so that anger is probably going towards my wife. That cause like, we can we can connect right. those dots, and then your wife in, sabotaged your car because you yelled at obviously, her. Obviously, cut the brake line. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, uh, but yeah, and so we can we can connect those dots. But in the moment, it just feels like all this shit is just coming at you at once, and it doesn't seem to make sense. And Leviathan feels like that. Um, and yeah, it's a wonderful film. Uh, next up, you know what? I'm going to go with a big one. I'm going to go director. Okay. And I'm going to go with Jean-Marc Vallée for Wild. He, as a director, made wonderful choices uh, by not telling the story in a straightforward way. Uh, and I think some of this has to do with the really great script by Nick Hornby. Um, but just and – w- and we'll talk later on in this episode. We'll talk about one of the ways that he uh, emphasizes the – the memory aspect of this, that as this character is walking along, she's remembering all the things that brought her to this point, either logistically or emotionally. And the fact that that is always with her, that she is carrying it with her just as much as she's carrying that bag. Uh, I think it's shot beautifully. I think it's, uh, I think he manages to, to have the right tone. Why not having it be incredibly self-serious which is something we talked about in the in the uh the most recent movie profile um it's not it doesn't take itself super like incredibly seriously even though the main character is serious about what she is doing but she's not you know she's not just weighed down by the by her plight or anything like that she's still able to interact with people in a way that we recognize and so uh his ability to juggle all of these things and have a very clear idea of the tone he wanted to strike. Because the thing about, did you take, you took the road movies class, right? Uh, no, I didn't take that. Oh, okay. I took a class on road movies and it's so interesting how, how a bad road movie and even sometimes a good road movie, if they're trying to do it, you know, purposefully, um, a bad movie can seem like just this patchwork that doesn't, that isn't unified. Mm-hmm. Wild is completely unified all the time. We feel like we are watching one complete uh, uh, piece of work, and and that is about that is a function of the director. I didn't see Dallas Buyers Club, but after I saw Wild, I'm like, I got to go back and watch Dallas Buyers really Club. Do. I'm sure it's great. So I thought he did a, a wonderful job. Yeah, I don't have really much to to add to that. that. But yeah, it being of a piece in the way that it goes, you know, from uh, 
you know, from present to flashback and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, never feels, uh, uh, it's a movie that is episodic and doesn't really feel yeah. that way because each thing leads into yeah. and out of, they all, there's a lot of dovetailing. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the obvious one, uh, as, as a, uh, steadfast, uh, auteur theoryist, I can't not give, I can't not give best director to the person who directed my favorite movie of the year. So I got to go with Ava DuVernay oh. for Selma. Um, and I think it's a, it's almost a case study in what the importance of a director is because, it's not like uh, it, it would be trite to say that she took a conventional screenplay and made it something personal because it's not exactly it's not a convention. I mean, it is conventional in terms of, you know, sort of, uh, I think, plotting, for lack of a better word. I, I don't know how that word applies to something that's a true story, but it's not a bad screenplay at all. It's a very good screenplay that, uh, you know, um, has a lot of uh, great um, ideas and unfolds. Uh, the ideas and the characters um, in, in, in a way that's uh, competent and gets toward um, a, a, you know, central ideas. But Ava DuVernay's simple, simple choices. It's sort of like, uh, you know, we talk about making a movie out of order. Mm. Um, and when movies are made, they're made bit by bit. And, the finished work when you're when you're in production on a movie yeah um uh, before you even got into editing the finished work is months and months down the down the line um so if you're let's say you're you're chris kyle right okay uh it's a weird place to jump to but no what, what the point i'm trying to make is that a, a sniper a long distance sniper mm-hmm. moves the barrel of the gun a centimeter to left or right yeah. that has a huge difference on where the bullet ends up that's a very good analogy and so Choices that 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 Ava DuVernay makes in in Selma on just what to focus on, what to make the the centerpiece emotion of each scene, um, are small choices that end up having a huge impact because, like Brendan Gleeson, she's able to keep it all feeling uh, of a piece, and so it's a movie that's incredibly emotional without ever being sappy in my opinion, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and a movie that is, uh, very sharp eyed about its characters and Martin Luther King Jr. In particular, without that being, without just being a sort of, uh, pedestrian biopic. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and just, being able to make sure you strike the right tone because it is worth noting that Martin Luther King has not been dramatized that often. Um, you know, I don't know, probably more on TV than in film. And I think because he's such a, he's such a gargantuan figure in still pretty recent history. I mean, there are still people alive today that knew him. My mom was talking about when she saw Selma, she was talking about because of the age that she was in school, mm-hmm. she wasn't taught about the civil rights movement because it was like, it wasn't happening at that time, but it was yeah. too recent to be in history books. Yeah. It's really interesting. It got me thinking about stuff like, like Reagan in the cold war eighties is like something that maybe kids not learn about now in history class that wasn't taught in my, like I didn't learn oh, yeah. about, you didn't learn about like Mikhail Gorbachev and stuff in, yeah. in school. Cause it was like too recent to be in any of the books. It's really, I bet every generation, like every person has that kind of like, not necessarily blind spot, but something they didn't learn as much about just because it was too recent. Yeah. Just the thing and, that like uh, I'm off historians track. or at least 
as far as teaching kids, they don't quite know what to say about it because it's almost like, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> right. um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're like, okay, it's been 10 years, nine 11, uh, negative. So, uh, yeah. And just, and for her to recognize, all right, I've got a responsibility to this figure and this movement and this era. And if she went too cartoonish with George Wallace or Martin Luther King, like made him too great or George Wallace too cartoonishly evil or whatever, or some, or like, uh, well, Tim LBJ, the man in that movie. He's great. He's so good. He's really great. Um, and so, but that's the thing. Like she just, you're right. She had to, it's just all these small tweaks. Everything had to stay small and believable. Otherwise it would just, it would, it could, it could have been one of the worst movies of the year when you think about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I still think it's too good a screenplay to be that. But. Uh, I agree. I think that's a great script. Um, but when you think about it, it's like, hey, I wa- we're making a movie about Martin Luther King. Right. Yeah. Someone's like, wonderful. Awesome. <laughs> great. Let's do it. Yeah. Instant Oscars, you know? And I don't think they were thinking in those terms. Okay. Apparently not. They didn't get any Oscars. Got, got song. Oh, it did get songs. So that's a go. good song too. It is actually good. And you know, it's interesting. I think I met, I think I made reference to this uh, last week. Uh, it's a song that in the film I, it didn't really register to me, but well, because it said in credits. Yeah, but like, but a, a song can still be powerful even in that context. But when seeing it at the Oscars, seeing it live, and just seeing like all those people come together and what the song can be and what it yeah. represents, it was actually very powerful. You know, then. I actually take the back. It did affect me during the film because it's. It's not until the credits that obviously, you know, because of when the movie was made and when it was take when it takes place, it's not until during the credits that the connection to Ferguson is literally made in the yes. song. Yes. Um, and I found that very popular, very popular, very powerful because mm-hmm. it's something I've been thinking about the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to have common, uh, say that, I guess I got to start coming around on common. I, I think I can safely say I have no opinion one way or another. Uh, see, he like, his early lyrics contained a lot of homophobia. Okay. And it's something that he has since like said, I'm not going to be doing that anymore. That's not who I am. I don't believe that, but it always stuck with me because that was when I discovered him, he was saying like, like, (laughs) like there's one, one of his lyrics is essentially like, Oh, gay rappers gross. He doesn't say it like that. (laughs) That's essentially the sentiment behind, uh, the, the verse. Um, and I'd so, have more respect for him if he had worked that <laughs> lyric into one of his songs. Um, but uh, it always stuck with me. So even after he like apologized, I'm like, that's great. You were kind of already a grown man. Maybe you should have known. Uh, and I, so I think I, I, it, it was a long time for me to come around on him. This song has maybe done it. Oh, good. All right. All right. Um, I've always liked John Legend though. Or at least his voice. Even when I don't like one of his songs. Cause that, he does that have sort a of, very powerful voice. You know, that's sort of like, traditional r&b like not traditional like not not like current r&b which has more of like a weirdness to to it and not like old like motown stuff but that like mid-period r&b stuff usually doesn't connect that much with me but when he has songs that i like which are usually songs that are used in movies like this one or the song that's in jingo unchained Mm -hmm. um i really like it but even when i don't like his songs i like his voice yeah, it's uh, a moment I go ago. I said he had a very powerful voice, and um, not powerful in the way that one would immediately associate with powerful. But like Mariah Carey, 
yeah, like just like I, I don't think of him as somebody that can belt it out, but emotionally it's very powerful. Um, okay, uh, we will jump to okay, so we still have actress, supporting actor, and then sort of uh, what's the one we'll do last? Mis- miscellaneous, yeah, yeah, okay, so we'll go with the uh, uh, supporting actor, okay, all right. Now, I said I would not bring up the Babadook. I would, I would not, I'm not going to bring up Essie Davis or the film in general. I did not, I feel like I did not talk about enough about Noah Wiseman who plays Essie Davis's son. Uh, this, I mean, there are two main characters in the film. I'd say he's more supporting and she's more lead, but, um, I was, I was looking at, uh, iTunes reviews of the Babadook because I wanted to make myself angry. And uh, <laughs> mission accomplished. I did. Uh, and you had people. It's just astounding to me. People saying like, oh, this movie was uh, this movie was bothersome. Like the, they didn't say bothersome. This movie was the worst is probably what they said. <laughs> like this movie was the worst. That kid was annoying until about halfway through. Then she became annoying. I was like, yeah, <laughs> funny how you were responding to exactly what you're supposed to respond to. But it's just the kid is annoying. He's, he's really, yeah. he grates on you and not just in like, he's just loud or screechy. He's you. I feel like you're really put into what it is to have a problem kid, like yeah. bringing what, like hurting think, kids at, at school and just, and just being a handful, but also recognizing that he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't want to hurt anybody. He's a sensitive kid. He wants to, he wants to do well, but he just can't keep himself from doing these things. Yeah, it's like we talked about last year or two years ago, uh, the kid who plays Bradley Cooper's son in Place Beyond the Pines, yeah. who's also in The Gambler, by yeah. the way. Um, I had trouble admitting to myself that it was a good performance because he was so good at being someone that I didn't like. Oh, yeah. And that's how I feel about Noah Weisman. As someone who doesn't want children... The Babadook is like a perfect horror story. <laughs> except that, you know, it'd be easy to say that his performance is one note, except we do see moments, even in the first half, we see moments of sensitivity. And then towards the end, we see him. Oh, sure, yeah. Even at a time when his his own mom is starting to, to turn on him, you still see his loyalty there. And for a kid this young to be able to deliver on all of those different levels, it is really worth noting and she's getting a lot of the accolades and and that's fine she's wonderful but if that kid didn't work as well as he did like this the film would not be effective like we need to be bothered by him and then be okay with him and i was on board both of those all right um supporting actor for me i'm really taking uh, i said i would be mining for my top 10 but i'm actually i'm enjoying the way that this episode has become like a mix of individual achievement and our through the cracks thing, mm-hmm. like shining lights on performances that haven't gotten as much, as much attention. And I think in the movie reviews that I wrote this year mm-hmm. or, or this past year, um, in no movie did I focus more on a performance than Robert Pattinson's performance in the Rover. Mm. Um, he was, he was close to, to making it for me here. Uh, and, and maybe just as a guy who hasn't seen the twilight movies, um, I knew him from Harry Potter four, which yeah. is not a very big role. No, um, and he's more of a he's he, he, he's more of a prop than the character, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, in the movie, especially at the end. 
when he's a dead body. Spoiler. <laughs> um, and then I had seen uh, a movie called Bellamy, which just wasn't very good, so yeah. I, you can't judge him by that. He's so, quite good in Cosmopolis. I like him in that. I, just, I need to see that. Um, I'm hearing bad things about Maps to the Stars. Yeah, well, uh, Matt Warren didn't seem to care yeah, for it much. But he's not an outlier. Like, Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not getting good reviews. That's too bad. Anyway, um, so The Rover was the biggest surprise for me because it almost seems like this almost seems like this sort of choice almost seems like it could be in a Hollywood satire like Maps to the Stars. Like, oh, the pretty boy heartthrob actor takes the role as the, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Mentally handicapped person in the hard R violent yeah. uh, indie movie. Um, and yet he never, it never seems self-conscious to me what yeah. he does. Everything he does, I mean, even though the character is full of, ticks in the way that he walks and the way that he yeah. talks um it, it's it, it's a fully realized uh physical and vocal and mental performance yeah. you know um there's a i, I don't want to give away too many spoilers but there's a part where guy pierce has been apprehended yes and Robert pattinson sort of i guess comes to his rescue but that's the wrong way to characterize it because he's not yeah. a heroic character yeah at all and um it's exactly the kind of like robert pattinson almost acts uh, i mean i'm sure some of this is down to uh david michaud but robert pattinson almost acts like the he's almost like he's the director of that sequence or that scene because he's doing everything to make it not what i just said not the cool action scene yeah because the characters you know dumb and brutish but also by that point and by the fact that he even came back for guy pierce you really feel for him yeah uh, you know this is a guy who's been abandoned by his brother uh scoot mcnary who's in every other movie yeah um uh and despite the fact that guy pierce has been nothing but an asshole to him yeah uh he's glommed onto him and you know you could say it's a stockholm syndrome or or whatever but he robert pattinson for as much as a uh again a dumb brute as he is he still needs that connection and it's quite telling that you uh, not quite telling, but it's surprising that you see his need for a connection in the way that he murders two people <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a very like it's a very committed performance that is very the, the only way I can think of to describe it is very matter of fact. This mm-hmm. is a character who does not analyze things. <laughs> he just he just instinctively realizes, oh, I'm probably better off with this guy than not uh-huh. because there are things I need to get done. So uh, I got this gun. I got this gun. <laughs> there are these two guys who are holding him. Yeah. All right. <laughs> let's go. Yeah. It's a, it's a really great performance. Um, okay. So uh, that leaves us with uh, actress, lead actress. And I will talk about Hilary Swank in The Homesman, uh, a film that... Co-lead. Co-lead, very much so. Um, Yeah. Hilary Swank is one of these uh, weird case studies in that she's incredibly dependent. She's got two Oscars. She's incredibly dependable. Mm-hmm. She can come into. I didn't see Amelia, but in, you know, even though I heard the film isn't very good, I'm sure she's great in it. Um, Freedom Writers. I have no doubt she's great, and I didn't see it. Um, Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah. Um, 
Freedom and just, writers. Writers, yes, yes. Yeah. They're not writing for freedom. They're writing for freedom. And yeah, so yeah. uh, she just, like, nobody, people don't talk about her as one of the best actresses of her generation, but she is. Absolutely, yeah. And she shows up in The Homesman as a woman who is strong, forthright, but still incredibly vulnerable and and willing to be vulnerable. It's always a conscious decision when she is being vulnerable. She is defined by her time as far as expectations, but not, not as far as her personality. She doesn't play it that way. Like, there could be right. a temptation to play this character as a more modern woman, which would be right. anachronistic, in order to highlight how she is a victim of her time. Yeah. But she doesn't play her that way. Yeah, she plays, like, there's a, there's certainly a, a tragic quality to the character, and she plays that without overplaying it. Um, it's a really, there's a lot, there's a lot of great stuff going on in The Homesman, uh, and Tommy Lee Jones does probably some of the, some of the better work of his career as well in that film. Uh, but I feel like she really holds that film together and helps set the tone of the overall film with her performance because there's a bittersweet quality to it. All right. I'm going to go with Jenny Slate for Obvious Child. Okay. Um, which is not – it's the definition of an unshowy performance. Um, it so doesn't seem like that choice here because it's a perfectly – it's perfectly natural. Everything she does – is naturalistic. And, uh, I think not, not, you know, I'm not an actor, uh, at all. I never really have been. Uh, I was in a one act and you uh, won an award for it though. <laughs> just for my drama club. I won an award. All right. I was only up against other people, in my drama club. Um, and I didn't deserve it, but I still won an award anyway. Um, but I have seen enough movies and I have enough of an idea of what acting is to know that being that naturalistic on a movie set in front of a camera is probably pretty difficult, especially when it gets to the moment that could be the big actory Oscar clip moment or, or, or a couple of them, you know, when she's, um, early on in the movie, when she's sort of hitting rock bottom, um, or later in the movie when she's sort of making the point of the movie while doing stand up. Mm -hmm. both of these are while doing stand up. really. She does, uh, that's an, I mean, this is just a side note, but it's also very important to the to the character in the movie. She does stand up in a way that isn't uh, excruciatingly cringe-inducing, yeah. which is difficult for movies. Movies don't MTV shows don't seem to get the portrayal of stand up right. Yeah, uh, usually it's really embarrassing. But this feels really natural. It feels like being a, a billion you know uh, alt stand up shows in the back rooms of bars um, that we've that we've been to. Uh, and she does the, like, too drunk to be funny, like, bottoming out, mm. bottoming out thing and the finding her confidence and finding her voice and being funny while also making um, the point of the movie, which is, you know, I, I talked about it as being the, the thought of as the abortion comedy, which both is and isn't mm -hmm. the case. But um, uh, in her stand-up at the end, she uh, basically makes the point that... Um, without coming out and saying, saying it like I'm about to, but basically makes the point that statistically we all know someone who's had an abortion. We might not know that they have, mm. but we all know someone who's had an abortion, uh, most likely. And, um, there's, it's 
problematic that we stigmatize it in such a way that it seems more rare than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that's probably true. I would say even if you're on the other side of the uh, of that, that would probably be true for you, that keeping it swept under the rug isn't doing anybody any any good. And when she's making that point at the end, she's still being funny and still being the character. Mm-hmm. And that's what she does the whole movie. It's hilarious. Yeah, I, st- I, I think it's coming out on video soon, if not uh, recently released. But it's the thing that I, right. I, I love Jenny Slate on Parks and Rec in what it, I have to assume is a different type of character. <laughs> um, if you saw, yeah, you saw the Parks and Rec yeah, finale, and I, I've so seen, you got I've a seen sense one of with her. her before too. Okay, yeah. but yeah, she's delightful, and so I'm intrigued to see her as a straightforward character, that, but still funny. Yeah, um, yeah, she's still a comedian. Okay, so I do have so we every year we talk about the standard categories, and then we pick just sort of random categories that jumped out to us. I have two. Um, okay, I usually stick with one, but I have two because I wanted well, to. talk I'm about I'm also going to cheat. So okay, uh, the first cinematography. Okay. Bradford Young for a most oh. violent year. Okay, watch out. Well, here's what you know. What I'll just say what mine were going to be. Okay, because I was also going to I was going to cheat by doing um, by picking one category. Okay, but two different people. Okay, um, cinematography. Yeah, both Bradford Young and then Mikhail Krishman who did Leviathan. Okay, Bradford Young shot a most violent year and Selma. Yes. And Mikhail Krishman shot both Leviathan and Miss Julie, which is a terrible oh. movie, but he did a great job. Okay. And so I wanted to highlight both those cinematographers as both having really good years, like yeah. doing good things in two different movies. So I guess we can both talk about Bradford Young. Sure. Uh, what do you have to say about A Most Violent Year? Uh, I think it's, well, I think it's gorgeous, first off. Um, and I feel like, uh, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but I felt like the color palette and just the general visual tone of A Most Violent Year reminded me of the work of Gordon Willis um, with uh, especially the Godfather movies. Like the, yeah, because it also takes place in the era that he yeah. was like working at his uh, his peak, I guess. Yeah, and it just – and it feels gritty and it feels – it's a very – it's a very dirty film both uh, as far as, you know, the the – the content and, and, and the way these characters, some of these characters are living, but also it just seems like gross, you know, it's, Oh, the snow has fallen, but now it's just black slush all over the place. And, uh, and it's just a a very, it's a very messy life that these people live. And it's a very, and when they're indoors, it's very dark and very Brown when they're outdoors, it's overcast. And it's just, it's not an upbeat look. It's a very, you know, I it think seems I'll, negative. I'll, I'll disagree with you a little bit, actually. Okay. Because I think it's, I, I don't think it's dirty so much as it looks worn in a way That's that a actually thing. is kind of, kind of handsome, I guess, depending on your personal tastes. But a movie it reminds me of, and I just looked up the cinematographer's name is Fei Zhao, who shot Sweet and Lowdown. It oh, okay. kind of reminds me of that in that they both seem like they take place in... A lot of it in, uh, you know, realistic lived-in locations and, you know, the, the you know, the, the gutters and, and, mm. uh, and Sweet Low Down, the dump, <laughs> that, yeah. that sort of thing. But there is a sort of patina to the way that the world looks. It, yeah. looks. it looks lived in the way that 
it looks like a world that has aged the way that a nice pair of leather shoes or a leather briefcase would age. That's a great, that's a great way of, of it feels like an old leather chair that's very comfortable, but it's starting to crack mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, if I were to use the word Baroque, do you think that would apply? I don't think so. Okay. But that's because I'm, a little... I'm already settled on handsome. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm a little iffy on what Baroque means because I've heard people say it, but like, uh, I, I associate it with often the color brown, but See, d- but no. dark and kind of beautiful, but not necessarily the type of beauty that you Im- immediately think, think of. Baroque usually just means, uh, usually has an element of uh, exaggeration, of being overly um, ornate or, okay. um, oh, what's the word? I'm, there's another word I'm looking for that I, that I can't remember. Uh, intricate. No. Opulent. Maybe. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly isn't that there's, I mean, there's, there's, you know, some aspects of this world that, that are, but certainly not most of them. So I'll stick with, with the way you've been, the way you were describing it, which is it does feel, a term I tend to use a lot and I, I feel like I overuse it is lived in. This feels like a very lived in world, but characters are still trying to seem much like the main character himself. He's, you know, he's had kind of a rough life, but he's trying to be, res- he's trying to be respectable, you know? So it's like, you know, an old pair of shoes, but you've put, you've shined them as much as you yeah, can, yeah, yeah. but they're still, they're still old. And and pretty worn, as you said. Yeah, and to make the jump to to Selma, he does a lot of the same thing there, which is making this, making it look like a uh, handsome, uh, keep using that word, um, period piece, and having that that glow of the past, mm-hmm. but also having the. Um, uh, I really need to find the words. It has the immediacy of the present at the same time, yes. which is perfect for Selma, which is a movie that. Um, makes the case in in um, covert and then later with the glory overt ways yes. that the civil rights movement is still happening, yeah, um, or still needs to be happening. Uh, his his choices really bridge that uh, the the fifty years in between. Uh, and then you wanted to also talk about the other uh, cinematographer. Yeah, um, I'm the, there's something I've been thinking about for years. Um, that I've never, you know, I'd like to write an editorial on it, but I've never known exactly how to put it into words. There's, there are certain, you know, cinematographical choices that will feel big no matter what size screen you're watching them on, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, the frame is the same as it would be in a million other movies. Um, uh, The Shining is a perfect example of this. Uh, you know, you can watch The Shining on a 19-inch TV, mm. and it feels huge. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that has to do with depth, I, I think. Um, but it also has this... Um, there, there, there's a there's a height to it as well. Um, you know, uh, Leviathan has a shot of... It's it's in uh, it's in the trailer, so I guess I'm okay, and it's not really a spoiler. Um, it's a shot of a wall, interior wall, of a kitchen, mm-hmm. and it's that shot. The camera's not moving, and then suddenly a crane or whatever, a yeah. piece of uh, construction, knocks on the wall. It turns out they're knocking down the house, yeah. and it knocks it in toward you, and uh, it feels monstrous. It feels like you're watching Godzilla or something. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, it has as much to do, like, I think the impact of that has as much to do with the, uh, the, the noise and the movement of the house being knocked down as it does with the stillness that precedes it and yes. just this wall. And um, I think that uh, I'm glad I mentioned an interior shot because so much of Miss Julie is also uh, interior. And I think um, that um, ability to make uh, domestic locations, um, interiors and homes and, and walls seem uh like stages uh or 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 paintings in a way um translates to miss julie as well which is based on a play and in many ways that aren't good uh feels like it's based on a play um i mean in many ways even if you were watching this on stage you'd be like this is a little much uh (laughs) but um the location is fantastic. It's a that they shot at a real like Irish manor, an mm-hmm. old like Irish castle manor type thing. Um and you know, I, I, I having this real location, there might have been a temptation to like, well, let's make this feel real. Let's go handheld, mm-hmm. right? But um he doesn't do that and neither does um Liv Ullman, the director. Um everything still feels larger than life while still just like Bradford Young can make that connection between the past and the immediacy of the present. Um, he makes the connection between something that's gargantuan and outsized and something that's, uh, very, uh, lived in and familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't see Miss Julie, but I, I agree with you about Leviathan. It does seem for, a, for a story that seems so small, it does seem somehow epic as it should yeah. given the nature you know the the thing it's referencing um but uh okay and then la- the last thing i'll talk about i wish i had a name but when you're looking up the sound department and you're looking for the <laughs> sound mixer well there's like five different things with mixer in the title so i don't know who to credit with this okay um but the sound mix of wild was so effective for me the reality uh, just what the director is trying to achieve is is really uh, c- uh, sort of cemented with the sound mix because this is a, a a a character who's walking along and is inside her head almost the whole time, and so we we get uh, you know flashbacks to her mother and all that, but. We also, but along with the visual, it's important to have uh, aural, A-U-R-A-L, aural flashbacks as well. And sometimes it goes with the image, sometimes it doesn't. And so the way, you know, there's a a, a Simon and Garfunkel song that that, uh, keeps playing throughout is a song that her mother really loved. And so... And would sometimes sing. And so we get sometimes her mother is singing and sometimes it's the song itself. Sometimes it's Cheryl humming it to herself. And sometimes it, it plays a very large, it takes up a very large space on the soundtrack in that moment. Other times it's just a little, just fluttering. And it feels like when you're walking along and you have a song stuck in your head Mm -hmm. or you're thinking of what somebody, of something somebody said, 
Sometimes it's clear as a bell. Other times it, there's just a hint of it as you're walking around in your everyday life. And that's the sound. That's the sound mix. Um, do you have, I think as a movie person, you probably have the same thing that I have, uh, that, uh, my wife makes fun of me, fun of me from her a little bit. Um, no matter how well I know a song, mm-hmm. once it's used well in a movie, I will never be able to separate it from that movie. Okay. Uh, so that's a classic song, but it will always oh, yeah. be associated now with wild and specifically with someone ripping off their own toenail, which is oh. kind of a, <laughs> kind of an, a, unfortunate for Simon and Garfunkel, but, uh, <laughs> It's still, uh, but it's, it's, it's used like the use of the song is great. Um, and, but, and that's, that's a very concrete example that I can point to as far as the way the song is used throughout the film, but also just, you know, the crunch of dirt underneath her shoes and the fact that that needs to be just as, uh, recognizable on the soundtrack as what's happening inside her head because right. this is the hard reality that she's dealing with is just constantly walking forward in a harsh environment but this is what's happening inside her as that as that is occurring so those things need to happen at the same time and I fe- it feels like for a film that, ta- that takes place so much outside it feels like a surprisingly internal film um, it feels very small in a, on a, in a vast landscape and, and the visuals do a great job of that. But like I said, the, I think the, the sound mix, uh, cements it and it's, it's marvelous. Oddly, oddly enough, it's weird to come away from a film. I mean, I, when I watched it, I thought like, wow, Reese Witherspoon is really good. The next thing I thought was, that's a, that's a brilliant sound mix. It's a weird thing to come away from a movie thinking about the sound mix, yeah. but because I did, I was like, I need to make special mention of that. All right. Because I think because people, this is some, the big thing that I learned in film school was how vital sound is. Because and because film is a visual medium, people don't think of it. Yeah, I was uh, vital. One of my teachers, uh, um, Kaplan, was his name. Yeah, Mike Kaplan, I think. Anyway, mm, Mike Kaplan is somebody we had on the show. Who was he? Comedian. Yeah, yeah, that's not right. Um, I do remember the last name Kaplan though. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, he said that uh, an audience will accept a movie with bad picture and good sound before they'll accept a movie with a good picture and bad sound, which seems so counterintuitive to film, but he's completely right. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, uh, I think that does it. Can I, well, speaking of wild, can I change my supporting actor from Robert Pattinson to that little kid who sings the song? (laughs) sure absolutely <laughs> he's yeah. fantastic he is he's, he's also delight. in cake by the way oh okay which i did not see eh. yeah all right um so you can find us at battleshipretention.com that's where uh all our reviews are and the other bullshit that i write and uh all the other podcasts in the bp fleet this it podcast is hardly bullshit you know what i'll say this right now and I, I know we have to we have to leave what you're writing is hardly bullshit it is spot on it's everything that film criticism should be <laughs> and i and like you can laugh but the fact is you're not merely writing reviews you're extrapolating larger things from movies that have nothing to do with merely saying what the movie is about and whether people would should go see it you're talking about deeper things that people might not immediately catch and i think that's what criticism is supposed to be and i'm super thrilled that you're doing it and i feel like i should do it more okay well, well thank done. you that's that, that, very touching um Anyway, don't you, you fucking dismiss me. I'm it, trying to be I nice. don't know what to, I don't know how to take a compliment. Okay, fair. I'll fair talk enough. to my therapist about it. All right, please do. Um I, I talk to my therapist about all kinds of shit you say. 
So, um, <laughs> well, uh, maybe I've got a few more things that uh, you can talk to her about. Okay. Um, so, BattleshipRetention.com is where you can find all that. Uh, you can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. I should say and or. You can send emails to both of us if you sure, want. what the hell. Uh, if you want to send stuff to us, by the way, our P.O. Box address is on the website, too, on the uh, under About about Us. Uh, yes, I believe so. And then that's where you find the contact information. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at the pretension. Follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Now, your other podcast is called More Than One Lesson. What's going on over there this week? Well, uh, if everything is going according to plan, then sitting outside my office is my co-host Josh, and he and I are about to record. Uh, the most recent Best of Pictures episode, or oh, mini-sode, yeah? in which we'll be talking about Birdman, which just won Best Picture. How about that? So, uh, then, and by the time this episode goes up, you'll be able to hear something I haven't yet recorded. Oh. That's exciting. Time travel. That's exciting. Um, my other podcast is about TV. It's called Hey, Watch This. I do it with uh, Paul Goble. He's the king of TV. Mm-hmm. This week, we'll be talking about the series finale of Parks and Recreation and the season finale of How to Get Away with Moida. Uh, that's uh, also at battleshipretention.com. And uh, did I get it all? I think so. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 